Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner at St. Constantine. Today we're going to talk about something a little bit different than we usually talk about. For the last few episodes I've been mostly focusing on short individual poems by poets. Today I'm going to talk about part of a long poem and use it to meditate not just on the meaning of the words of the poet, but also the implications for our whole theory of poetry. The beginning of the formal study of poetry we can trace back to ancient Greece 300s where we have both Plato and Aristotle meditating on the nature of poetry. We see uh, very famously in Plato's Republic Socrates express concern over the possibilities um, of poetry perhaps uh, being bad for people. Uh, he has a moral argument against certain poetry that perhaps it promotes vice and incites vice within the, the reader. But he's also worried at sort of a philosophical and metaphysical level that maybe poetry in that it's an imitation, in that it's an image of reality, is too easily corrupted or made unlike reality. Because it's not reality itself, it's an image of reality, it's necessarily somehow removed even metaphysically or ontologically from reality itself by one or maybe even more steps. He does, however, indicate that not all poetry is necessarily bad. Often, often Plato was accused of kicking poets out of his ideal city. It's not quite the right read, I think, of Republic. But Plato, in probably the earliest formal literary criticism we have, is a little cool toward poetry. He's, he's aware of its dangers, and of all art in general, but poetry in particular. And he singles out the poetry of Homer as the greatest poetry of his of his world, but also perhaps sometimes the most dangerous poetry of his world. Following hard upon Plato's Republic, we have Aristotle's book uh, De Poetica, or The Poetics, and it's really with Aristotle that we start to get a more formal approach, not just to considering the effect of poetry on those who read it, or considering the effect of poetry in a broader philosophical or political context, but considering this question of what is poetry? What are the kinds of poetry? How are the kinds of poetry different from one another? That's what, that's what Aristotle does in Poetics. He focuses a lot on uh, the nature of tragic poetry. We would call that tragic drama or tragic plays today. But one of the things that he focuses on that he keeps from Plato is this idea that poetry is in its essence, an imitation of the world. He in particular points out that often uh, stories or narrative poetry is an imitation of the actions of men. So the ancient world with both Plato and Aristotle focuses on poetry as imitation in words. And both of them focus heavily on the fact that it's not just imitation in prose words, it's imitation in verse. It's imitation in measured language. And Aristotle even goes so far as to talk about which meters are best for which kind of stories, which kind of poems. For example, he says iambic meter, that is patterns of short, long, short, long, short, long vowel syllables, are best for tragedy. Because he says, we sort of speak in iambic sentences, short, long, short, long, or in English we would say unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. Uh, we kind of speak like that. And if you think about Shakespeare, to be or not to be, that is the question. That's an iambic line. But um, but um, but um, but um. You have that series of 
unstressed, stressed, unstressed, stressed. The epics, on the other hand, both Plato and Aristotle talk about, are written in dactylic meter. That's long, short, short, long, short, short, long, short, short, as a repeating pattern. In English poetry, that would be stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed. So very famously, uh, Longfellow's Evangeline starts, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks. You have that da 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 Some have said it almost sounds like the drums of war. Of course, epic poetry often concerns itself with war. In fact, war or arms, meaning martial arms, is the first word of the Aeneid. Wars and the man I sing of Troy. Even that wars and the man I sing of Troy, that there's a dactylic cadence even in an English translation there. So if we look at ancient literary criticism, or poetics as it's more formally called, we see that there's an interest in imitation and also in metric form. And I think one of the things that I focused, some might even say to an excessive degree, on in these poetry podcasts is formal aspects of poetry. In fact, I think that the further away we get from any focus on form in our writing, if we're a poet, the closer we're getting to actually losing the spirit of poetry itself. Yes, we want to write about something. We want to imitate the world. But if we don't imitate within form, we start losing, I would argue, along with Plato and Aristotle, some of the essence of what it means to write poetry. I was reading recently a poet talking about how they encourage their students to just express themselves. And if they truly express themselves, then they are poets. I almost agree with that. I think when we express ourselves, we are imitating our own thoughts and feelings. Imitation is something that is an important aspect, even a necessary aspect of poetry, according to Plato and Aristotle. But imitation in form, I would add, just imitation, just expression of one's thoughts and feelings, classically speaking, is not in fact enough to count as poetry. What I want to actually do today is not focus on Plato and Aristotle for the remaining time. I want to look at a piece of poetry by St. Gregory Nazianzus, or St. Gregory the Theologian, the 4th century AD poet and theologian, who meditated on poetry. I think one of the best of his age is his meditation on poetry. He explicitly wrote poetry and tried to think about writing poetry as a Christian. And he has a long poem, which is called On the Metered, or Aestometra, in which he meditates on the verse of his day and why he writes verse. It's a pretty long poem. It's over 100 lines, so I won't read all of it. But I want to pick out a few lines to read and meditate on because I want to be honest about what's motivating me in doing these podcasts. I love poetry. I love the poets of the past from Emily Dickinson uh, to Jeffrey Hill to Sylvia Plath to uh, everyone in between. But what also motivates me is this care for form. And because St. Constantine is a school in the classical Christian tradition, I want to be honest and sort of look at where does the Christian impetus for this focus on form and imitation come from? Well, I argue it comes from Gregory. So Gregory writes this. He, he's been complaining about the literature of his age, which he doesn't see as up to snuff. And then he turns around line 28 of the poem to his own writing practice. And he says this, Thus you may justly wonder why I write at all. With measured labor, first, I discipline my soul 
For riding lines can order my unmetered mind and keep my greedy pen in check. Instead, I spend my sweat on metric form. Second, I write for youths and for whoever takes a deep delight in words. My verses read like sugar with elixir mixed. They can win men to virtue's work and discipline by sweetening with art the bitterness of law. Think how a pulled-back bowstring loves to be let loose. At least, my verse can satisfy your preferences for popular and lyric compositions. I have written hymns and plays for those who wish to play, but not be hindered in their quest for beauty. Third, and if this just sounds petty, let me know. I write to win the current battle which we wage with words, where each side seeks through books linguistic victory. I speak of language that partakes in beauty, though supremest beauty is through contemplation reached. Among the worldly wise, the sophists, we produce our faithful plays. Now, let us act the lion's part. And fourth, when winter wind brings sickness, struggle, death, my poems comfort me, swan-like old man. They lull me with their wings, embolden me like woodwind hymns. No threnodies, but songs to lead me ever on. So this is kind of chock full of thought. Gregory was deeply steeped in the philosophical and theological traditions of the ancient world. Critics have, have traditionally seen four major reasons here that Gregory gives for writing poetry. The first one, which is actually, I think, the most important for our purposes, is this. He says, uh, with measured labor, first, I discipline my soul, for writing lines can order my unmetered mind and keep my greedy pen in check. Instead, I spend my sweat on metric form. A word about the meter here, because he's talking about meter and he's writing in meter. Uh, he's writing in what we would call today iambic hexameter. That is six iambic feet. But um, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um. It's a little longer than iambic pentameter, which we're used to, uh, say, in Shakespeare. And it makes the line feel a little bit more stately. Just as a side note, we would call it iambic hexameter. The ancients would have called it iambic trimeter because they would bundle iambic feet together into series of four syllables. So ba-dump, ba-dump, that would be considered one iambic foot, even though there are two actual iambics patterns in it. So there are three bundled together iambic feet. Ba-dump, 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 ba-dump. It's, it's just a difference in how we think of and, and name meter. What's he saying about meter? Well, he's saying, with measured labor first, I discipline my soul. For writing lines can order my unmetered mind. Often, poets will talk about the discipline or the craft of poetry, that it's difficult, that they labor over verses. What Gregory is doing here explicitly, though, as a Christian poet, is admitting, look, I have a soul and I have a mind and they're not ordered. The disorder of the soul, of course, is something that uh, both Plato and Aristotle talk about a lot and comes up a lot in scripture. This idea that we are immortal beings, but that we have lots of problems. And those problems aren't just related to the body, right? That's what the Gnostics or the Manichees thought that, oh, if we could just get out of the body, everything would be fine. No, 
many ancients said, our soul itself is disordered. Even if we didn't have bodies, we might still have this problem of disordered self. So because we have a disordered soul, because we have an unmetered mind, the act of poetry, the act of carefully metering words, can be practice not just that results in a poem, though that's nice too, but that actually results in a more ordered soul. And Gregory points out, and this is something that comes out in his prose as well, he says, writing lines can order my unmetered mind and keep my greedy pen in check. Instead, I spend my sweat on metric form. He has a greedy pen, he says. He wants to write a lot. And in fact, there's a sense in Gregory, both in his poetry and prose, that Gregory admits that he is overly loquacious. Uh, he just wants to be a blabber mouth. And in fact, Gregory wrote so much. He wrote many poems that, we, that haven't even been translated yet. Gregory struggles with wanting to talk too much. And he sees writing poetry as a way to check that. He spends the sweat that he would use just blabbering on about anything, or maybe standing on a soapbox sort of being uncharitable. He uses that energy to write metric form. The form is what he spends his sweat on. And that spending of sweat does two things. It means that the energy that he might use to be intemperate with his words, immoderate with his words, is being put to good use. And also, it's ordering his mind and ordering his heart. Plato spends some time in the Republic talking about the effects of certain rhythms in music upon the soul, the rhythms of the soul and the ordering of the soul. So I would say that the most important thing that I'm getting from Gregory is this idea that writing in meter, practicing form, isn't just, I don't know, a, a decadent, we have all this time and privilege on our hands, so we're going to spend it making pretty words. Poetry can be condemned, I think, and art in general, as sort of superfluous and unnecessary. Why don't you do important work, not this pretty poetry? Well, if Gregory is right, and if the other ancients are right, then the making of poetry, if we have the time and opportunity to do it, can be a spiritual discipline can be a mental discipline, can actually contribute to the life of the soul. I want to skip forward for a moment. He talks in his second section about writing for youths and whoever takes a deep delight in words. I think that might need, it, need its own time to unpack, this idea that poetry is for teaching. But I want to skip forward for a moment. He says in line 50, I speak of language that partakes in beauty, though supremest beauty is through contemplation reached. Gregory was platonic in as much as he thought that in heaven, in the heavenly realms, in the realm of, of God, there's such a real thing as objective beauty and that language can participate in that more or less. And so I think when we think about this idea of measured labor, of laboring over meter and form, it's not just the discipline of the soul, though goodness knows we need that. It's also a way to participate, if only haltingly, if only for a moment, in those supreme beauties, that supreme order that exists on high with God. Now, we don't have time, of course, to talk about the difference between Platonic ideas of heaven and Christian ideas of heaven, but at least they share this, that there is some high reality that is the source of and the model for all that takes place on this earth, and that poetry, 
poetry that partakes in form, that takes form seriously, that takes form seriously, especially when it wants to say important things, important things about emotions, important things about politics, important things about theology, that the best, the most respectful thing we can do with those things we want to speak about so deeply, often so ferociously, the best thing we can do for them is to write of them in form and to discipline those words and through that our own souls. And then those words might partake in supremest beauty only for a moment. Though I like that he acknowledges, look, Supremest beauty is by contemplation reach. That gets into questions of what contemplation is. The active and contemplative lives are often distinguished and talked about which is better, the active or contemplative, in, in patristic writings. Gregory seems to be on the side of the contemplative, but he himself is saying, look, I'm messed up. I got a lot to work on, and poetry helps me work on it. And maybe, just maybe, my language can partake of that beauty that my whole soul should be ordered toward, both in contemplation and in action. I want to talk more about Gregory's poetic theory. We've only talked about the first reason he writes poetry. But I, I want to say I think it's one of the most important things that we get from all of patristic literature about art. It's a theological, anthropological justification for writing formal poetry. And when I look at verse today, especially verse that eschews form for just mere self-expression, I'm tempted to say, what a waste. That expression could be disciplined and thus be good for the writer in disciplining their soul and in partaking, if only for an instant, of heaven. This has been the Poetry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.